0: to Tempest and Atenos, where two life coaches discuss esoteric issues related to life, relationships, finding purpose, and self-understanding. I'm Dr. Misty Marlowe.
1: And I'm Suki, aka The Wild Soothsayer. So last episode, we put the triple X in explicit when we discussed taboos. And since we discussed the beginnings of life, we thought, why not dig, pun intended, into the end of it? this episode about death and we have a special guest and friend for this show um she's aware of multiple hats a few of which is a psycho spiritual counselor and a psychedelic integration and spiritual life coach and an amateur thanatologist uh and for all of you who are not word nerds like me that is somebody who uh studies death and related topics Anna Alicia Montano,
2: and Anna, did you want to share a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure, no problem. So um, I'm Anna. I'm from the Twin Island Republic of Trinidad and Tobago, and like Suki mentioned, I'm aware of multiple hats. Um, so I have various interests. I do various things, one of which is um, like a death doula, so I... Help both the dying and their family move through the death process and help them get ready for that whole transition. I assist clients in having a good death, provide holistic supports, um, help the family members and the dying, <laughs> and the dying deal with existential anxiety and fear. Um, then there's like the logistical stuff of putting affairs into order if they want to do like legacy projects. Um, then, you know, there's also like working with grief and bereavement, dealing with loss, coping and adjustments. So in the death realm, that's kind of like what I'm doing. But otherwise, there's a lot of other things that I'm doing. Um, I work with uh, psychedelic medicines, the natural ones. Um, yeah, the spiritual coaching and psychospiritual counseling. And we'll just put a pin in it that um, and you're going to have to be ready
0: to come back in a future episode to talk about the psychedelics. Um, because that yeah. is just like a whole nother bag of worms that is absolutely fascinating. So we're gonna we're gonna bring you back for that. But for today, death and dying. So uh, if you've heard previous episodes, you know that I do nerd out um, to get us started, and usually try to provide some scientific definitions of some of the the terms we're gonna be using before we segue into the stuff that is more in the realm of life coaching. So I am going to get everyone on the same page by officially defining death and uh, you know it's a lot more complicated than it sounds like uh, at some points in time there was a, a different definition based off at least in the United States, based off of your region of the United States exactly how death was defined. And it wasn't until 1980 when they developed the Uniform Determination of Death Act that we had, at least in the United States, one federal law that said this is what is occurring when someone is dead. So the death is defined clinically according to the Uniform Determination of Death Act as an individual who has sustained either irreversible cessation of circulatory and respiratory functions or irreversible cessation of all functions of the entire brain, including the brainstem. That individual is dead. Determination of death must be made in accordance with accepted medical standards. So this is how we can get things that are like complicated, like brain death. And unfortunately for some of the families I've worked with, that can actually be a somewhat traumatic situation um, when someone is hooked up to an EEG. Uh, But respiration is still occurring, but the medical staff can look at the EEG and see that there is no real Tangible activity in the cerebral cortex of the brain, and they'll start uh, like having uncomfortable conversations with the family about, So, would you like to donate organs? And the family's like, How dare you talk to us about this? They're still like breathing, they're still alive, but the medical staff knows they're in a persistent, like vegetative state. And when they can see the EEG, they know that, like, none of that upper level activity. Is, is really happening in the brain. So you know, that can be a very confusing, very distressing time for the family. I mean, depending on the family's value systems, um, you know, saying anything about harvesting organs can be like a whole nother um, situation as far as the body having to remain intact for the burial ritual. But we're going to talk a little bit more about that in a bit. Now, um, we have unfortunately, because death is an inevitable part of life, have a lot of research that actually breaks down the death process and looks at kind of the sequence that you see when someone has a terminal illness. Of course, this doesn't apply that someone dies by uh, a sudden act, like an an accident or injury of some sort. So weeks before passing, it's very typical to see minimal appetite, appetite, increased need for sleep, increased weakness, increased incontinence of bowel and bladder, restlessness, you know, disorientation, and increased need for assistance. When we're getting to the days before someone passes, we start looking at decreased level of consciousness, pauses in breathing, decreased blood pressure, decreased urine volume, um, like mummering to people or seeing things other people can't see. Um, reaching into the air or picking at covers and needing assistance, nearly with all care. And I I find that information about the days um, before passing and mummering or speaking or seeing things that aren't there, um, that's going to be very interesting about what we talk about from a spiritual aspect a little bit later, because the scientific community and the spiritual community definitely have their own opinions about how to interpret that part of the dying process. And then uh, we move to hours. Before death, we look at, again, even further decreased levels of consciousness and frequently the person may be being in and out of the comatose state, inability to swallow, pauses and breathing becoming longer, shallow breaths. Of course, the pulse is slowing, so there can be weak or absent pulse, um, the extremities becoming cold or purplish. And breathing can actually, at times when it occurs, becoming noisy because the throat muscles are relaxing. People have actually termed that the death rattle. And skin coloring can become pale or waxen. So that's the death process. Now, that is physical death, um, something that someone might be addressing in in a coaching situation or someone like uh, a thanatologist like Anna. Um, Yes, the, the, the physical process of dying is stressful, but there's also a term called social death about how your social relationships begin to alter as you realize and others realize that you are dying and and have a terminal illness. So there is social death that begins when other people start to dehumanize the individual and withdraw from them um, due to that illness. And uh, of course, it can be someone of any age if there is that acknowledgement of a terminal illness. Uh, Back before we had as advanced medical treatments for HIV and AIDS as we have now, um, there was the stigma with the illness, but then also the prolonged um, process. And the individual who actually influenced me to become a therapist was a thanatologist who worked with patients who were dying uh, from the complications due to AIDS. And, you know, he talked about it was very common for those individuals, especially in the last weeks of their death, to be isolated socially. And that was a big role he played, is to make sure they didn't die alone. Um, Because, again, they were going through this horrific and prolonged physical process, but they had kind of already gone through a social death, where they had been alienated by friends and family. Um, And that's, you know, a lot of thanatologists, which Anna can speak more to, um, they, they know that one of the things that people fear most is dying alone. (laughs) in unfamiliar places in in pain. So having a support while that occurs is very important. Um, So we we talked about these basic kind of biological um, aspects, the fact that social death is frequently a part of that when death is anticipated, either for the terminally ill or um, the the elderly. So Suki is now gonna kind of talk about some other phenomenon related to death and dying.
1: So originally I thought I would dig into like the many myths and then I realized, oh my goodness, there are so many because there are so many people on the planet, so many cultures. So I'm going to give you uh, some broad strokes of some common themes I found. So one of the things I found when I dug into it is that um, in most of the ancient myths, death was not a given uh, in the origin myths, but something that emerged through either an event or a series of events, and that um, in most of the myths, what I found is that it, death did not arise as a punishment um, until I saw until I started reading further uh, further into modern history and the arrival of monotheistic um, religions. Lots of themes of travel, um, and I kind of uh, felt that that was sort of analogous to death as a process as opposed to a singular event in most cases. Um, uh, usually it involved either travel along a river, the most one, I think most people are familiar with would be the River Styx, but um, I would see different types of river, river or water travel associated uh, with it or using some kind of special road that was associated with travel. So it would be that you left your body, traveled somewhere and then crossed over to the afterlife. Again, a process associated with that. Um, the myths that I would come across, death was not something to be feared. Um, it The myth was used as a way to establish death as a natural process of human existence. Um, some sort of afterlife or event after death, um, reincarnation and afterlife, some sort of metamorphosis was pretty, pretty common. Um, so, um, and I don't know if, Anna, there's anything you want to throw in there in your studies that you've run across, mytho- mythologically speaking, um, about how.
0: <laughs> yeah, tell us some of the cultures that had the, the what you think are the coolestness. I want to, I want to geek out over that.
2: Um, well, I mean, like, what was coming up to mind when you were talking, Suki, is, like, you know, like, they have the Tibetan Book of the Dead and the Egyptian Book of the Dead, you know, which basically comes, like, this sort of, like, guideline for those who are dying and then even after they've died and one thing I remember is that within the Buddhist tradition um, there's a whole ritual that's involved when the person dies Um, one of which is that when they die they still keep the body and they will read certain passages from the Tibetan Book of the Dead that are supposed to help guide these spirits along its path in the afterlife and there were some other things, I think, um, I can't remember it exactly, but it had to do with like, they would put like, I think it's ghee or something on, on the forehead of the body and stuff like that. And then they'll take the body out into the mountains. But uh, I guess like their burial practices. And then of course, you know, same thing with the Egyptians, they have the Egyptian Book of the Dead, which as well as sort of like a, um, a guidance for those who departed and going along that process. So I find that so interesting because we don't have that in Western society, you know? Like there's no sort of like ritualistic container that's held for both the person that's dying when they've died and then their family. I mean, we have like funerals and stuff, but it's very, like it's so far removed. It's it's not this like intimate kind of practice. So that was something that was popping up in my head when you were talking. Yeah, um, and and
1: about... Um, rituals. I looked into that. One of my, <laughs> those of you that listen know that I am a voracious reader, and so um, I have a book called The Perfect Stranger's Guide to Funerals and Grieving Practices. I've mentioned this series before. Um, it was edited by a guy named Stuart M. Matland, and I looked through that just to look for some common themes with regards to uh, modern rituals it is more geared toward facing the states but what I did find while there's some variances, burials tend to happen in three to seven days. Um, I would note that we have found evidence of death rituals. I looked into this um, uh, anthropologist. I don't know what an anthologist is. I don't know why I wrote that down in my notes but uh, <laughs> <laughs> an anthropologist have found, Evidence of people engaging in death rituals going all the back to pre all the way back to prehistoric, and they found prehistoric graves where they found fossilized fossilized flowers. Um, one thing that I did find is that not all death rituals are strictly religious. Sometimes they're cultural. Um, and Anna and I uh, and Anna can talk about this later. There's um, rituals of light covering mirrors. Um, uh, I know that in some of the Celtic religions, you open windows. Um, uh, you definitely want to make sure you find out what to wear. It's noted in the book. Not uh, black is not always appropriate. So if you are attending a funeral with a culture or faith you're unfamiliar with, please ask somebody what you're supposed to wear, um, because black is very common in the West. It is not common everywhere. Um, and, and, and as our culture becomes ever varied, you need to make sure you know what to wear. Um, one of the other things um, that you need to keep in mind, you know, I looked through, I think there's like 26 different rituals listed in just this book. Think about how many people are out, in just this book, I get 26. There is no such thing as normal. There is no two rituals alike. So like normal's not a thing when it comes to death rituals. Like just, just chuck it. <laughs> so uh, just to strip it from just strike it out of your your vocabulary um so that's one of the things uh that you need to keep in mind and even in this book which is one of the reasons why i love this series it, it has many a note that says um question is this appropriate and the note will say ask somebody um <laughs> so it's like you know i so said you should ask the minister you should ask the So that's, that's one of the things I've noticed that, you know, the more reading I did, the more, uh, variety and varied I found at, oh my gosh, is it fascinating. And I don't care what anybody says. I know I am like up here in the Midwest, I will figure out a way to have a second line at my funeral. Like I need the horns. I need the ladies with the parasols. I need the party. Seriously, people, I need the party. I want the horses. I want the carriage. I want
0: all of it. (laughs) uh, when my father passed away just last september um yeah i I was deep in the grieving process but also i'm still a giant nerd and um like from my my mother's side of the family the ritual um very much even like judeo-christian but also like a specific sect and the body could not be cremated The body had to be buried in a, you know, uh, a cemetery that had been blessed by a church and the feet of the individual that was buried had to be oriented to the east. Uh, because that was part of a belief system about like the direction of resurrection and so you you were not to destroy the body because it was all supposed to facilitate resurrection i did not earn any bonus points in my mother's book when i said well if it's Jesus it can be ashes can't jesus just put the body back together magically she's like you need to shut up right now now i it, she <laughs> it was my sense of humor so she took it as it was warranted but you know i'd said to my mom i was like you know my sister is incredibly claustrophobic and she's lived directly at my mom and said, Don't put my dead body in a in a coffin. And um, I'm like, you do realize you'll be dead and you don't know, right? Um and, <laughs> and she's like, uh-uh, like I don't like we need to have an agreement right now. You are not, I am so claustrophobic. Even the idea of my dead body in a box drives me nuts. But for whatever reason, she's fine with uh, you know, being cremated. I'm like, yeah, hey, I don't get why the two things are different in your mind, but okay, fine. And my mother's policy is like, well, you know, if you die before me, I'm putting you in a box because you have no say so. Like she just, and, and that was like a whole nother thing about like, uh, the death rituals, they're really kind of more for the living than they are for the dead. So is it like, where is that line that you cross between respecting the wishes of the person who passed versus cultivating the ritual in the manner that the person who passed would want it to like go because i'm with sookie like i'm like overall like please don't spend a bunch of money my my corpse is just going to be in the ground rotting like ideally cremate me um and have a party like i want everybody getting drunk eating awesome food and telling fun stories about me i want something more akin to what we think traditionally about as a wake, even though i'm not technically irish um, so it's you know it, i i think about it more along those lines
1: I want to play like that song, prop me up next to the jukebox if I die. <laughs> I mean,
0: like I have seen like some really awful things, but if I thought there was any way my friends and family would be down for it, I would be the most morbid, insane person with my ritual ever. Like it really would be like, I need you to find a taxidermist. And uh, if you are going to put me in the box, I really want it to be that somebody at some point during the ceremony starts playing Pop Goes the Weasel and everybody just <laughs> to look into the box and look into the, the coffin and be like is this seriously happening right now like i like from the beyond my spirit would be dying laughing of everybody like is her ass really about to pop out of that box right now dun, 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 dun. i would want to just feel the <laughs> anticipation over the everybody that was there um but now my <laughs> wife
1: wants a Viking funeral. <laughs> That's <not the> answer, <laughs> <too>. <laughs> She's yeah. like, you know, and we're near her river, so I mean, I guess we can pull that off. <laughs> <laughs> you know, just, but I mean, you know, we better, kind of, I mean, as morbid as it sounds, we better hope her mom goes first, because her mom would like shit a brick if I like, you know, floated her into the river and shot flaming arrows at her. I think it would be hilarious, but, you know, that's, you know, I, I, I'm kind of like, if it's not dangerous or illegal, what the hell,
0: but <laughs> Wait, is it I, like, cause I've heard somewhere about like, it's now illegal to spread your ashes in certain places. Like people would go to like lakes and things. And I've heard at least in the United States about people getting in trouble being like, that's like biohazard material because it's a human and you can't just like spread it in the national park. I'm like, Hmm. Like, you got to catch me first. Like, if I had a friend or a family member that's like, no, nah, you got to go to Yellowstone and spread my ashes, I'd be like, you got to catch me, you know, I'd, even if it was a little bit naughty. So, Anna, you were about to say something. What What were you about to say?
2: Yeah, no, no, no. I was just going to say, like, with respect to Suki's partner, you know, like, the whole thing is about to have, it, it's about having those conversations, right? So that way you have an understanding <clears throat> of what that person wants. So that way you can honor it. Because then if you don't do that, then, when the person dies, then there's this whole like, I guess, conflict that can arise within the family of like, <clears throat> all right, what do we do? Okay, this person thinks we should do that. This one thinks we should do that. This one thinks we should do that. But like, if you have that conversation, and the person's like, no, like legit, I want to have a Viking type funeral, throw the fucking arrows to my. Can I? Sorry, Chris. Yes, this all the time. You go right ahead. Yes, all, all right, cool. Um, yeah, you know, have the flaming arrows and everything. Then. You can't really dispute that because if that's what the person wants and they're like dead ass serious about it then you might as well honor it right because it's what they want it's not like somebody saying well i want to do this for this person if the person's explicitly said like yo like this is what we're going to do this this is how you're going to dress you're going to play this kind of music well it's been said right yeah I mean, because that again related to my dad's,
0: you know, I was a little pissed at him. I mean, his death was incredibly unexpected. It wasn't like we had time to plan, but I was like, we got to get like fucking flowers for this thing. Like he was like a macho dude. He'd be like, piss on those flowers. But it was <laughs> like, you know, so I, we were like, just get some like fucking like white flowers, nothing too frou-frou. Like he was, he was Captain Macho. He's like six, four, three hundred pounds. Like he was a man's man. He doesn't give a shit about flowers, but it was part of the ritual. And like I was a little mad. I was like, I kind of wish you like had written down what you wanted. Cause uh, I mean, first of all, when you're grieving, grieving, that's the last shit you want to figure out. And also I, I have my cynicism that really starts showing is that I feel like some of the places, not, not where we went, but some of the places are a little predatory and they know the family's grieving. And they be like, well, if you really love them, you would get the mahogany coffin and really mm-hmm. honor that. And so people end up spending like maybe way too much money, um, you know, more than they really should have, like, and, you know, we could fall back on those. like, my dad, my dad said he wanted to be cremated, and my mom literally said, well, you, you, you know, you better not, like, die first, because I'm burying your ass, I don't believe in cremation, so I'm not doing it, like, she just, you know, told him flat out, um, but he, he said the cheapest, when I'm dead, I don't give a shit, like, I don't care. I 800 rent a coffin for yeah. my funeral. Um, yeah, so <laughs> for that, like, That's I feel like, uh, yeah. The, the pods. Yes. The, the more yeah. pods. Yeah. where they, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. See, I'm like, yeah, let a tree grow out of my ass. And then you, yeah, I had a client of mine who, again, I don't know why the theme is like claustrophobia that like gets people to think a little bit more about this. I think we should all be thinking about it. It's kind of inevitable, but I had a client that was like, yeah, super claustrophobic also really creeped out by the idea of embalming. So she started looking in the United States for a place that did natural burials where you just get to essentially throw the corpse in the ground and let it rot. She didn't really think too much about like wanting a tree to kind of grow out. But um, she found a place that was actually at a monastery in a state in the United States. And um, like you had to be in a biodegradable pine box. And but here's the caveat. Your friends and family had to dig the hole. Um, six feet deep. So she did like went ahead and got everything planned. They said that she could be wrapped in like her grandmother's quilt because the quilt cloth, the cotton is biodegradable. And she started having to like go to her friends and family and be like, So this is my wish that I have a natural burial. And uh everybody go dig them a hole. Like, and they're all like, Fuck, really? Like, we're gonna have to be like crying and also like digging a fucking hole in the ground. She's like, Yeah, that's what I want. They're like, shit, okay, fine. <laughs> now my sister <laughs> it and I, yeah it's like yeah you're like energy like getting the emotion out by doing some yeah. exercise at the same time my sister and i love jewelry so i said it only half jokingly i'm like not only are you going to have to cremate my ass you're going to send my fucking ashes off get me made into a diamond put it on a pendant on a necklace and wear my shit to every family event and so I will. I I am seriously considering doing that for her to be like, ah oh, shit, I got to get Misty out. It's Thanksgiving. So <laughs> like, that's right. You wear me to Thanksgiving dinner. You wear it. Um, but, yeah, she. But you can have like, yourself embedded in like
1: a crunk cup, so
0: that like. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Yeah, like a full-blown pimp class to be like, Miss Sparkles, pass it around and say some good things about Misty. Like, (laughs) I would love that shit. Uh, Yes, yes. Um, uh, These are, I'm going to have to write these down. Like, these are going to have to be documented in my will. And uh, I'll, I'll have to maybe make something sneaky contingent, like set aside like a good chunk of change and be like, it is only after you do what I say that you get money. Like that's how you get people to really do what you want them to do after death. <laughs> it's to be like, uh, you, want, you want some money? Then you do what I want you to do with my dead fati and have some of these ceremonies. So uh, so yeah, we're getting, I'm getting like good ideas. I didn't anticipate, I was going to have good ideas for things to put in my will, but this is good stuff. I like it, I like it. So- um, I
1: actually considered before becoming a life coach, making that like a career, not so much being the actual uh, in the doula phase but just being like all right you know you're over 40 you need to sit down and like plan all this stuff out the reason being like I am the person in my house who knows where the bills are and knows where the list of passwords are mm-hmm. and just being like and I even started to draft like a you know um, you know in case you kick the bucket book um, mm-hmm. because believe it or not if it happens suddenly like that is in that is a high stress time yeah I I remember thinking like oh my gosh if something happened to my parents I would be like screwed and then I thought oh my gosh if something happened to me my wife would be in so much trouble because even now if I ask her like can you go check the bank balance the first question is yeah where are the passwords okay look the passwords are the same place they have been For the first 23 years of marriage woman so it's like and the truth is like you know when my grandmother was passing she had kidney failure and uh, you know one of the things i loved about my father is that he had had this conversation with her Mm -hmm. and she did not want to be prolonged and i remember him talking to the doctor and he said listen if we try two rounds of dialysis, are you going to be able to stop or is that going to be too hard? And because he'd had the conversation with her, he goes, no, if we do two rounds, it doesn't work. We can stop.
2: And
1: not having those conversations can be an incredible strain on um, everybody left behind. And as, uh, yeah, I've tried a lot of stuff. So as a former life insurance instructor told me, You also got to worry about that long lost cousin who flies in at the last minute and says, don't unplug my aunt, Um, you know, and you haven't seen them for 15 years. And when you don't have these things discussed and unfortunately these days on paper somewhere, Mm -hmm. um, it can create a lot of strain, Uh, you know, and you know, it really is having these conversations, writing this stuff down is really a gift you can give um the people who are going to be tending to these things after you're gone um
0: let's oh, cool. see yeah Anna's got like the document she's holding up in the camera for yeah. a, is, is that officially a living will document
2: yeah it's basically like um orders for you know like do not like when to resuscitate when not to resuscitate and like different conditions of like what could like, okay so like let's say you get into like a serious car accident and forgive my language, but you're a vegetable, right? Like your, your brain has basically gone offline. You're breathing via um, this whole mechanism. It's like, all right, well, what do you do in these situations, right? Your family now, naturally humans are going to be like wanting to pray for or hoping for a miracle. And everybody thinks that they're the ones with something's going to happen. Right. And there's nothing wrong with that. But at the same time, it's like, there needs to be like a realistic conversation beforehand where like, if something were to happen, what, what does the family do? Cause again, like say this is, you know, a family of like a mother, father, a daughter and a son, and something happens to the son, you know, there could be a lot of conflict between the mother and the father and the daughter between, you know, what do they do? Because they're going to be hoping for that miracle. Something's going to change, you know, yada, yada, yada. When you have these kind of documents and you have that kind of conversation, it like, it, lessons, a lot of the like conflict that can be added on top of the grief that people are already experiencing. So it just makes life simple in that sense. So like, I mean, this thing has like a whole bunch of different options in terms of like, you know, I was saying like, <coughs> when to resuscitate, when not to resuscitate certain treatments, you know, what, what protocols should they follow? Like, if it is like the difference between the brain and the heart going breathing, slash breathing, you know, what do you do in these situations? So um, this one was actually from California, but you guys could check it out online. Um, where's the where's website, boy. It's www.capolst.org, so you could check it out. I'm sure like different states would have something similar too. But in terms of like family dynamics, it's I think it's really important to have these kind of conversations, you know, like because there's different things that could happen, whether it's like a sudden accident or some kind of terminal illness, um, What do you do in these situations? But if you have the conversation again, you know, like I said, it could like diminish some of the extra conflict that could happen and the differences in views that people would be experiencing.
0: So, yeah, and um, yeah, just getting everybody on the same page because something I see that's incredibly stressful is that family conflict, Mm -hmm. because different family members will be very adamant that their viewpoint is the one that would have been shared by the comatose family member, and there is zero way to determine how much accuracy is behind that versus how much is the family member having difficulty letting go or Mm -hmm. trying to let go quicker for their own peace of mind, and that's just Mm -hmm. taken off the table. If it can be like, it's not even about me, just read the document. Now, where I've seen a little bit of complexity is if you have a really, like a really bitchy family member and what I consider to be a slightly unethical medical practitioner that I've actually seen a medical practitioner, like actually you can like see the wheels turning their mind. They're like, well, that person's going to be in a persistent vegetative state. They're not going to sue me for not unplugging them. But if this family member is ticked off, They'll sue me for following the living will if they get really ticked off. Now, they might not win in court, but I'll still have the court battle until Mm -hmm. it gets sorted out. So I've actually, um, as like a support to the family, gotten very angry when I've been like, the person had a living will, are you following it? And just because one family member that, you know, realistically, it'd probably be somebody like my mom, who's like, yeah, what you wanted is really sweet, but I'm the one who's in control right now and I'm going to do what I want to do, (laughs) kind of like what she did with my dad's funeral. It's like that family member. It's like, yeah, I hear they have a living will, but I don't want to follow it. I've seen the doctor cave. So that's all the more reason I like the idea of the person having the living will, but also looking their family member in the eye, like I've done with my mom and be like, if you don't do it, then you know, you're going against my wishes. And I feel like that's a betrayal because that's, that's harder for them to just ignore the document. If you have looked them dead in the eye and had the conversation. Um, so, you know, people will still do it, you know, as much as you love your family at times, they do some shady shit. We, we love them anyway. Um but at least you've taken every step you're able to and controlled what you could is what the overall policy is.
1: (laughs) And depending on your state will depend on how detailed the standard forms are, but um, usually there's a ton of resources online. There are actually books out there. You can write addendums depending on how concerned you are that says, if I'm in a persistent vegetative state and I don't recover in X amount of days, you know, I want to disconnect because, you know, I've had this conversation with my wife. Look, you give me three months before you go broke and lose everything, yank it. I yeah. don't want you to go bankrupt. And that's going to vary uh, from person to person. I've told my parent, you know, I've told her, I was like, you know, if you don't know what to do because the situation is medically complicated, you are free to consult my parents and nobody else. You know, we, we have had those conversations because you know, shit happens. Uh, <laughs> uh, but the thing to keep in mind is if you don't have the conversation, um, then nobody knows what you're thinking. Um, you know, nobody can read your mind. Uh, so you've, you've got to have that conversation in advance. And yeah. if you have moved from young to young-ish, so you've had four decades of life experience, and you're now into the anniversaries of your 29th year, now is the time to start having these conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm now uh, at the time of my life where I have to start having these conversations with my parents. With my parents, um, I don't enjoy them because, as a matter of fact, as they are, that it's part of life. I still like to pretend that they're going to live forever. Um, because they're awesome, but that's, you know, unfortunately not how things work. So, you know, the thing to keep in mind is that what you're doing is uh, giving them the gift of peace of mind for when these things come up, should they come up, um, and getting it out of the way. Because let's face it, when these things happen and your emotions are roiling, it is really hard to get that prefrontal prefrontal cortex and executive thinking.
2: Mm -hmm. uh,
1: kicking in. So, you know, let's not burden people, uh, with all of that excess effort when they're, you know, um, trying to work through a grieving process.
2: So
1: let's, let's, let's try to take the, lift the burden if we can.
2: (laughs) Now, while we're, while we're on this topic, I have like a little, um, juicy question for us to kind of ponder on. Um, so like, what do we what do we make of consciousness like what determines a person being alive alive, right is it is it like the brain activity or is it like the heart slash the breath ah
0: see i tend to default to like brain activity but even for that even as a a scientist and a psychologist that's been my more recent foray of like stretching myself and Anna and I have had like separate meetings where I'm like, but like your brain doesn't equal your consciousness exactly like starting to recognize like more complexity and the difference between the brain and the mind and then that's where like talk about a whole nother podcast about like spirituality for those like is there a soul that continues and doesn't ask that Mm. that your consciousness continue after the physical brain shuts down and stops working um so I I do not think, in my opinion, that the mind and the brain are exactly the same thing. I think they're interwoven and interdependent, but that after death, um, your mind slash if you want to call it your soul slash your consciousness manifests its energy in a different way. That's my thought.
1: So I'm gonna I'm gonna split I'm gonna split a very fine hair here. I'm gonna say if you're Brainstem can't keep your bodily functions going, game over. As far as your consciousness, um, I'm gonna lean on good old Newton. I think it was Newton. Energy can be the conservation, the the, the uh, what do they call it? the law of conservation. Energy can be neither destroyed, it created or destroyed. So if your neurons firing, your energy. That means that even when you die, something, whatever it is, must persist. Mm-hmm. So, um, wherever it goes, I don't know. But as far as, you know, if my brain stem can't keep my body functioning without the assistant, without outside assistance, you know what? Just, you know, play on McDuff. Let, you know, <laughs> let, let me go. I'll be fine. I'm assuming wherever I wherever I am or wherever I'm not, um, and 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 get on with your life. As for the rest of it, oh, what a delicious topic
0: that needs a whole other separate conversation that is going to be. <laughs> yeah, i'm sure the complexity of a response that you can have would astound us since this is like such a big chunk of what you do but like if like when a client in coaching kind of asks you what you believe what is your kind of go-to elevator pitch from where you're coming from as a psycho spiritual counselor as far as what you think like after death like do you have like a brief what you tell them kind of statement or
2: boy huh I don't. <laughs> You're like, don't oh gracious, yeah.
0: Yeah, I don't
2: know. I don't know how to explain that one. You know, like, because um, you know, res- respect for everybody to each day when everyone has like different perspectives and stuff like that. Like, what exactly happens to us? I don't know. I think I have like somewhat of a, you know, an elaborate. Um, I don't know paradigm that I think about. I'm not really. I don't know how to describe it, but I mean what about, okay, so what might be interesting is, like, picking the person's brain about, like, near-death experiences and out-of-body experiences, you know, because, like, I don't know if you guys have read any material about that, but it's very, very similar across the board, like, people who have, like, out-of-body experiences tend to be extremely similar, and, you know, that overlaps with near-death experiences as well, so in that context, it's like, all right, well, what's happening there, because then it's, it's sort of, at least for me, you know, like, Personally speaking I find it alludes to okay like there is a consciousness so whatever you want to refer to it as that exists so there's got to be something that's happening you know when you die exactly what it is is difficult to describe like I, I tend to think about things like reincarnation I think calm is a thing um have, have you guys heard about this book or read this book many lives many masses I've definitely heard about, I heard about it and haven't
0: read it yet <laughs> I can tell you when my grandfather,
1: um, 10 years before he actually passed, he had this massive heart attack and had a quadruple bypass, and he was clinically dead for a while, and when he came to after surgery, he said he crossed over, saw his sister who had been gone for some time, and she's like, it's not your time, go back, they woke up, and he's like... Let me tell you what I saw on the other side. Yeah. You know, my grandfather's just not the kind of person to make stuff up. It's just not the way he was wired. So if he saw something, if he mm-hmm. experienced something, something happened. Yeah. Um, and I don't really recall, because I was, you know, what, 13-ish? I don't know what concept I was holding in my brain at the time, but it definitely meant that whatever it was i had that that definitely gave me something to to consider because it's like you know that just you know my grandfather's not the kind of person who would just fabricate Mm
0: -hmm.
1: something he saw or experienced something and it gave him um it gave a man who was already pretty darn zen to begin with and even you know uh more salient sense of yeah it's all good like he just you know i mean he he was already rolling through life pretty much like taking it as it comes and he was even more like yeah it's all good (laughs) like you
0: know, I got nothing. do with that, um, kind of like what Anna was talking about, like earlier on in when I was talking about like the stages of dying and how like weeks before death versus like hours before death versus immediately before death, I you know mentioned earlier in this podcast, I was like, ooh, and they say like it's this phenomenon where they'll see people kind of like mumbling to themselves or hallucinating and seeing things. Mm-hmm like some of the stuff that I, I've like read and listened to is like, yeah, like some people say your brain is just doing really bizarre electrical activity because it knows it's dying. It's trying to ease your transition and decrease your stress. But then other people are like, no, like completely analytical people whose brains wouldn't make up that kind of shit. Or they're being like, oh, I saw the other side and it's beautiful. See y'all there one day or are seeing like family members, And that is like so common for people that do, um, that don't die suddenly that do have that kind of progression of their illness yeah. um to and, you know people again if they're they if they have zero spiritual belief system they'll chalk it up to abnormal neurological activity related to cessation of functioning but it uh, like there's just a weird level of commonality um and even in people who themselves in life were very cynical and mm-hmm. did not believe and I've, i'm trying to remember if, if it was steve jobs that like, as he was dying, he was like, oh yeah, I, I see the other side. And it was like, what? Like that would never come from him. Like he was not that kind of person. And so right. there's like several very famous people that were not super spiritual in their lives would not kind of, it, it wouldn't be a manifestation of their existing belief system reported seeing something on the other side uh, and my, my like my father when he was alive was one of the most social human beings you've ever met like he would befriend everybody like still had lunch once a month for with people he went to elementary school with and so we'd always joked, it's like when you die you're gonna like you're gonna be talking everybody up like it's gonna be like that you meet entire like eight million people it's gonna be like yeah you've been dead for a while i've missed you let's go hang out like that was gonna be his way and it was the weirdest thing Thing ever, when he died, he had a giant smile on his face, mm. and I was like, he's hanging out with everybody, uh, and he's like, so like for him, like not distressed. It was just like, ah, oh. like because you know, speaking of death wishes, he had clearly said, I do not want a prolonged illness. I do not want to have any dementia because he valued his mental capacity so much. Because he had, like, I, he was never tested, but in my, like, he had near genius level intelligence. So it was like one of his big, biggest fears of living very long, developing dementia. And also, he was very independent and had a lot of fear around, um, like, having to have somebody wipe his ass, is how he put it. He would very bluntly say, Take me out in the backyard and shoot me before anybody's got to wipe my ass um so like he got to go out on his own terms and then if you believe that on the other side he also just transitioned to a state where people that he lost in his life that he valued like his father like his mother friends extended family he was reuniting so um yeah it takes away some of that negativity in the transition as well
2: right what i was gonna say is like in terms of like these deathbed visions you know like you know some people chalk it up to like oh the brain is doing this and that and it's having hallucinations but there is a marked difference between them right Mm -hmm. when people have these deathbed visions and it's like you know they're seeing loved ones or they're seeing the afterlife or whatever it tends to be like considered more of a mystical experience and it provides a lot of like peace reduction in anxiety it's very comforting the visions that they have are very meaningful to them whereas hallucinations on the other hand tend to be more associated with like frightening states, more anxiety, not having any significance or relevance. So, and then they also cause a lot more confusion. So, I mean, even like holding that, you know, there's gotta be something to what people experience. And, you know, like what you guys were saying about with respects to, you know, your loved ones seeing like previous loved ones who have like crossed over, that is something that's so common across the literature when people are having these deathbed um, visions. So in a sense, it's like, you know we have science and uh, i'm all for science and everything like that but i'm also for the mystical and spiritual side as well and i do think that there are some things that science can't quite measure or test and it might i'm not saying like it's a fault of science but perhaps we don't know the ways in which to go about using science to measure these things test these things or whatever but you still have the like verbal data from people who have experienced this and like even so like within that data you have like the marked difference between it being something being more comforting as opposed to like confusing and frightening so even like you know like i said with that alone it's it's really alluding to all right okay there's something else going on in this like dying process that people experience and my mom um a good like about 10 years ago we almost lost her it was like a whole fiasco thing that went on and they had to do emergency surgery and she had an of body experience And, you know, she said she saw herself on the table. She heard the music that they were playing, was able to tell the doctors about it. And they were all like, you know, what the fuck? But again, you know, she said, she said, apparently there were people around her being like, yeah, no, this, you got to go back. Like, you have shit, you still need to finish off. So, you know, she's back and she's still, hey, but same thing, you know, like, what what's going on there, whether it is that like, it is your time to go and you have like these loved ones who are like there and waiting for you. And they're like, yeah, come let's, let's, let's do this. Let's have the grand voyage, you know, or if it's like, hi, but yeah, you got to go back. You know, there's something to that too.
1: Yeah. I love that (laughs) phrase, by the way, the grand voyage, I'm stealing that. (laughs) I
2: I
0: like it. eh? I
1: have to say just from a coaching perspective that you know, one of the questions I have to ask is whatever your perspective is about um, death and what comes after it or how it should be handled, um, one of the questions I would always have to ask a client is, do you actually care um, what anybody else thinks, be they on the science side or somebody Mm -hmm. from a different faith or cultural tradition? Yeah. Um, we've talked about this in previous episodes about not shooting all over yourself, um, that women in particular are notorious for shooting all over themselves. And that's one of the things that I always have to ask is that if it brings you comfort, do you actually care what the judgment is? And uh, one of my favorite philosophical thought experiences is okay, you know, imagine that you are studying the planet and you're looking down on it. Okay, but how are you going to see what's behind you if you can't turn around and look? You're always sort of never going to, you know, it's like you're studying an aquarium, but you can't see if you're in an aquarium because you're if you're in an aquarium, you know, um, kind of like a fish can't study the water that it's in. And that's sort of the limitations of science. We can never really study the fishbowl that we're in because we're always in another fishbowl. And... Yeah. So science is always going to have its limitations and if we take that into account then the question I always have to ask a client is okay so if you don't have all the answers, can you live with that and you know do you really care if somebody else thinks your beliefs about death the afterlife whether they, whether you believe that there is nothing or there's something Do you care <laughs> you know if it brings you comfort if it brings you peace, do you really care, or are you shooting all over
0: yourself? <laughs> and that's um, something that you should get, and I'll interject, like, qu- the last um, kind of section of what we're going to do today related to death, you almost can't talk about death unless you talk about the grieving process, is to, to be very clear whether, um, like, if Um, like you can begin the grieving process early prior to death. If someone is diagnosed with a terminal illness, like that is a phenomenon of like, you know, if you get a cancer diagnosis and you know, you have six months to live, you get the unfortunate task of actually watching your family begin to grieve around you before you're actually dead. And you get to almost grieve the loss of your own life before you're actually dead. So for, um, you know, for life coaching, or therapy a therapist can help you grieve as the person who is like losing your life because you're aware that you have the terminal illness um, or you know for the the family of the person who's dying Or, you know, life coaching or therapy can help the person who was shocked by the sudden death of someone they love passing away through the grieving process. But if it's in your mind, is this something that I go to a therapist for or is this something that I can go to a life coach for? We've mentioned this in previous episodes. It's really how severely your functioning is being impacted, because anytime you think about going to a therapist, what was a good litmus test for me is thinking about medical necessity so and medical necessity is usually determined unfortunately because of insurance in the united states by your level of impairment if you are not having some impairment and in functioning insurance is gonna be like you don't need that you're fine you know you're 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 not that distressed so yeah like if you are having difficulty going to work because the grieving is so intense if you're having difficulty fully engaging in your relationships and you're socially withdrawing, if you have difficulty getting out of bed each day, this is probably more of a therapeutic go to psychology look at the therapist who's a network for your insurance in your area and go ahead and, and get that in that regular process to receive that kind of clinical support if. It's just you, you are grieving and you're having some level of distress, but you're still going to work. You're still getting out of bed, still engaging with friends and family, but you're just having difficulty truly wrapping your mind around what your life is going to look like without this person, or if it really is that the death of this person is causing you to want to reevaluate what your position is on, um, you know, existence after death, consciousness that would be a life coaching issue there is not impairment but major life events like having someone you love pass away can cause you to do a life reevaluation. and life coaching does not require you to have impairment for you to seek that service it can just be you want to understand more about yourself in the world want to manifest some more goals about how you want to show up and, and that is a magical thing that i see that happens Um, that like people changing their lives for the better because the death of someone close to them brings it home that life is not infinite. And they need to live aligned with their passion and purpose in the time they have left because they are not guaranteed more and more day on the planet. So that can be as almost like a death of someone close to you, shaking you up and saying, you going to fucking waste your life doing shit. You don't love. You're going to have a horrible job. You're going to be in bad relationships. Get off your ass and live the kind of life you want to live because you might have one day. You might have one month. You might have 50 years. You don't fucking know. So how about you not waste it? <laughs> so- yeah, Don't let don't don't
1: die with your music uh, inside you. And um, one of my favorite musicals, especially in high school, was always Rent. And the guy that crafted that musical literally died the day before it premiered. Uh. So he was literally a living example of not dying uh, with your music inside of you. But I did have a question for Anna now that we're on this topic. Um, as somebody who works with somebody who's making this final transition, do you ever, as a doula or a coach, work with somebody who says trying to do legacy, do legacy planning? Like I want to, in the time I have left, establish a nonprofit, a foundation, or these are or um, things I have a to-do list, and I and I need somebody to help me figure that out. What does that process kind of look like in trying to figure out what are the my priorities, like
2: now, I need I need to re. You know what I mean?
1: Kind of. Yeah um. Right.
2: yeah. um. I mean, like, I think it needs to be like a family effort. Um. Because again, it's nice for them to do something together and remember that process and what they are creating together. In other, times, like, uh, doing, a scrapbook kind of thing. So the person is like org- organizing photos and messages and everything like that. So it's like a kind of tangible thing that they leave with the family that the family can, you know, remember together kind of thing. But I mean, it manifests differently, right? but I think depending on the nature of the project that I do, it's usually more of a collective kind of experience because, you know, again, like, like we were saying with respect to um, the process of grieving together, it can be very therapeutic for everybody involved. You know what I mean? Because there's a lot more vulnerable conversations being had. There's a lot more emotions that are being expressed and shared between one another. So it can be a really beautiful process for both the dying and their loved ones to go through.
1: Nice. Nice. I I would think that would be, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Hmm. Well, something beyond helpful, but just, you know, just to have somebody that's like a guide to sort of say, okay, you've got whatever they estimate your time is going to be, and now in you, we know this is a priority. Let's, um, the term we often use is chunking, but just to sort of break this down into steps so that we know when the time comes, you've kind of got the, the peace of mind that you've accomplished, those top of mind priorities. Mm -hmm. Um, and left behind whatever gift you want for the people you care most about, whether it's,
0: you know, um,
1: giving, you know, funding the local donkey rescue or, you know, um, making sure- That's
0: my thing. I'm going to fund a local donkey
2: rescue. (laughs) (laughs) Um, One thing I will add, though, is like you really got to meet the person where they're at Um, because, you know, there there are going to be days when, the person might be really down and feeling more um depressed kind of thing and they're not going to want to work on this you know so you have to you have to be with them in that process as well not force them like hey you wanted to do this you had this goal like you know we we, we need to do this you can't urge them like that again you just got to meet them where they're at and take it day by day so
0: yeah i mean that, that makes complete sense and um, I like kind of to piggyback a little bit about what um, Suki and Anna were saying as well too like that in life coaching you we create structure and we give you a process but the client and in some cases the client's families kind of fill up and add their material so that's um, there's too much, like people think it's so morbid to talk about death and kind of left to their own devices. A lot of people will not have these important conversations. So having a structured environment like meeting with a thanatologist, a life coach that's going to dress up with the family creates the structure, but ultimately the family determines what is going to fill up that session and provide the content. But something mm-hmm. that, that can kind of be like dangerous from a cultural perspective um, are that we do tend to operate with incorrect myths about what it looks like to have healthy grieving or what people are supposed to do. And I I very clearly say unhealthy because it can cause these negative interactions between family members, between Mm -hmm. uh, you know neighbors. And like where this thought process started for me is that my grandmother had had a very long poor illness uh, with multiple uh, melanoma, not, not skin cancer, but blood cancer before she died. And it it had been really difficult. I had assisted my mother being her caregiver. And I was at her funeral after she'd been in hospice for about two weeks. And um, I was not crying Um, because in my mind, she, she died several weeks before. A lot of her consciousness had already altered in the two weeks she was in hospice. We didn't have conversations like we had before. So like two weeks prior, I'd kind of had done a lot of my work and it had been a seven year grieving process even prior to that. And I'm at the, the casket for the viewing. My cousin walks up to me and says, you're not crying. You must have not loved her very much. Um, and my cousin's not the nicest wow. person anyway, um, but that's the kind of thing, like, there's a myth that if you truly cared about the person, you're going to be bawling your eyes out um, at the funeral. And so on that note, I'm going to go through uh, many of the myths that need to be dispelled, So, and Suki's going to tell you actively how to not misstep when you interact with people because you have these myths in your mind. So Mm -hmm. one, everyone grieves in stages. And I blame this a bit on the research by Dr. Kubler-Ross who gave us the grief cycle. Um, She clearly says in her research, This is not a linear process and people Mm -hmm. skip over and go back and forth. Nobody bothers reading that. And they're like, it's (laughs) denial and anger and bargaining. And it's like, no, it's not. And one day somebody can be in acceptance and 20 minutes later be in full denial. They're even sick Mm It stop with the stages. Grief doesn't follow the rules. It's not the case. Um, And um, second one, grief and mourning are the same. Um, grief can produce many behaviors, mourning is one of them. So like grief can be like, um, uh, like, you know, it can actually be like mentally aware that this is happening, but you can do things behaviorally that you don't even realize are linked to you being distressed about the person passing. So grief takes many forms, uh, like numbness, pining, disorganization, despair, reorganization, I freak people out because anytime someone close to me in life has passed, I clean the shit out of my house and get everything uber organized. And people are like, you hate fucking cleaning. Mm -hmm. Like, why is it when you're grieving? I'm like, because there's something about organizing my external space that helps me through the grieving process. It helps me organize my internal space. So um, grief produces many behaviors. Mourning is but one of them. Mourning is how the person goes through the grief process, but grief can have like all these different elements that are associated with any major loss. Um, next, women grieve more than men, and that is so culturally bound. No, some cultures allow women to have a more visible expression of grief than they allow men, but we know men and women grieve equally at the bottom of it, whether or not crying you're not really grieving that's the one that gets to me i'm not a big crier shock tends to make me cry more than grief and i feel like i'm frequently judged that i'm not truly grieving if i'm not crying and i think that's bullshit Um, Myth number five ignoring your pain will help it go away oh no I see as a coach and a therapist, what happens when you try to ignore it is it just bites you in the ass when you least yeah. expect it. It'll just be like, hi, it's a Thursday and I'm walking through Target and I fell apart for no reason. It's just a, if you don't give an emotion a space to exist, mm-hmm. it'll find a way to creep out and you have less control over when that happens. So again, that's part of what's so nice about um, therapy if you need it or life coaching if you're at the place for that is it creates that container. Where it's mm-hmm. like let's honor this emotional state and and give it a voice let it you know figure out exactly what goals you want to have around what you want to do with this powerful emotion the emotion tends to be less sneaky that way yeah. <laughs> um myth number six the first year is the hardest some people are still kind of numb for an entire year after it happened again like exactly when it's most intense for you versus when it's numb it's so it's so variable and manifests very uniquely for each person miss 7 grief gets better over time like people time heals all wounds um, for some people, it, it does dissipate over time, but there are plenty of people that the pain stays pretty constant, and I just tell them there's like a part of your heart that's kind of carved out that gets reserved to grieving for that person. Now, I believe the human heart is so amazing that it can create room for other experiences and other things, um, but again, like that's that's from individual to individual. Grief does not follow a timeline. Um Grief has an endpoint. I call complete bullshit on that. I think um, like the intensity of the emotions can vary. But again, as we just said, that's based on the individual. But I've seen people 50 years after someone passed be like, oh, God, yeah, like still when I, I have a sense of longing, I have that tug in my soul and my spirit when I think of the person. Um, in general, we think grief doesn't really end, but it can evolve and change over time based on how you conceptualize it. Uh, the goal of grief is to find closure. Uh, I mean, what does closure really mean? Like I, my experience with people is that if it was up to us, we would have most people that we love in our lives for forever. And there is no set amount of time that was enough. Mm -hmm. So for me, that doesn't really set you up to have the concept of closure ever, when you could never really have had enough time with someone. Mm -hmm. Um, Where I do see like closure that's complicated is if you had some unresolved issues with someone, like if you had someone that you both loved and on some level hated as well, and you never got a chance to, as an adult, confront the person about some very harmful things they did to you um, and you kind of missed your chance because they died. But there are very powerful techniques that you can do either in therapy or life coaching. One's called the empty chair, um, where you can try to get yourself um, to a better place about that. But I think like closure is more ambiguous than people give it credit for. Um, Some people can find closure. Some people really don't. It is not the key. And like this idea of closing the book on grief, not really always realistic um myth number 10 that pisses this one pisses me off people struggling with grief just need to get over it i've been in way too many sessions with families where one family member has looked at the other family member and said it's been two years aren't you over it already i'm like, "I'm gonna like i'm gonna punch you in the throat from my, over here on my couch saying stuff like that to your family member." uh yeah, so i
2: had somebody tell me that before oh
0: oh my goodness um yeah. And and that's an individual thing, like for some people, like culturally, like it it almost like dishonors the individual to like just get over it. Like so for culturally, sometimes it's appropriate, Um, but it is up to you if you feel like, not because anybody else says shit to you, if you feel like you're stuck and can't get past it, that's for you to determine and that's when therapy is appropriate. But nobody else needs to tell you. They can, out of concern and love, say, it seems to me like you're not living the, a full life as you would like to live uh, and that this is distressing to you. It's interfering with your ability to function. Please be aware there are resources. There are therapists who can help you with this. You can do that, but close your mouth before you ever look at anybody else and say, aren't you over it already? That is such a snide, horrible thing to say to someone. Um yeah.
1: And um, I, I, I don't know where you can find it. I mean, you know, the, the Google machine, as you love to call it, is, you know, probably got it. But um, there are actually some places you can get buttons that say be kind to me. i breathing that people can get to just kind of give people a heads up um, that you need people to be gentle with you. Um, I kind of feel like I just need a button that says, be kind to me, I'm human. But um, (laughs) like, you know, just like we all need that button. Uh, But uh, if you happen to be in a state um, for anything, even what they call ambiguous grief, which means maybe uh, you've got some kind of loss of some kind and you need a button like that, I would encourage anybody like, find the button, get the biggest one you need, you know, put it on your forehead, put it on your chest, put it on the palm of your hand and shove it in people's faces if you need to. Um, But this is actually a good place to transition into some little do's and don'ts uh, if you want to be somebody who helps people who are grieving um, and not have any of us show up on your doorstep and bitch slap you for being a terrible person. So so the first one is... um, Much like Fight Club, the first rule about grieving is there are no rules about grieving. Um, There's no normal, just break it from your vocabulary because there's no such thing as a normal grieving process. The other thing is go back to kindergarten. If you see somebody that's grieving, especially if they've just found out about the loss, please keep your hands to yourself unless you've been given permission to touch someone. It is okay to ask them if they'd like a hug. Ask them if they want you to hold their hand, but do not immediately rush into their bubble and touch them. Not everybody wants to be touched. You don't know, you you know you, there, there are things that may be triggering for them. They might need to have their safe space. You need to respect that. So go back to kindergarten, keep your hands to yourself. Um, If you don't know what to
0: say, don't say anything, just listen. So if you don't know what to
1: say, don't say anything. It, people will often verbalize their thoughts out loud. So if somebody is saying to themselves, they don't know what to tell the kids, they don't know what to tell the kids. They don't actually want you to answer that question. They just want, you just need to be present and listen. There's a human impulse to answer, to fix, resist that impulse. Just be present, be quiet, don't interrupt just let them verbalize those feelings out loud, okay? The other one is, like we said before, with the stopwatch down, this process is gonna take as long as it takes, mm-hmm. okay? It varies for everybody, so stop looking at the clock. Um, the other thing is, is sometimes you need to just offer what you can and then follow through, keep your words. So if you say, hey, how about I just bring over dinner tomorrow Offer that, and then actually bring over dinner tomorrow. Sometimes, but not always, people may be too overwhelmed to answer the question. What can I do for you? Mm-hmm. You know, there's too many emotions. Um, that executive function, like we mentioned, just it, it's it's just not functioning. So sometimes it's okay to just offer what you can. Um, and if it's not what they need, usually, people, the, usually the brain will kick in and say, no, that's not what I need. And they can either correct you or say, no, thank you. But it's okay to offer, but you have to follow through if you're going to do that. Um, if it's not dangerous or illegal, just go with it. If your friend who's been a, a lifelong atheist suddenly wants to go to church and light a novena, neat, novena candle, don't look at them weird. Don't ask them what's wrong with them. Just go with them they're they're processing their grief the way they need to just go with it okay you know this is this is just how things are people are going to work through it however they want to work through it and um this is the big one okay there's no asshole pass on this i'm telling you this right now there is no right way to grieve, okay and what worked for you Maybe a terrible idea for somebody else. And I've seen people do this, it is terrible. Do not tell somebody else how to process their grief. Do not tell somebody else how to get through this. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. Maybe looking through the scrapbooks worked for you. Mm-hmm. Putting those pictures away might be better for somebody else. Mm-hmm. Don't tell somebody that the right way to, to process, the right way to heal, that's a terrible idea. If somebody is struggling, there are professionals trained to help. Mm-hmm. And the best thing you can do is hand them a phone number. Okay? <laughs> that's, the, that's the big takeaway. There's no right way for anybody to get through this process but their own way. And the that- best thing you can do to help somebody is to be empathetic, <laughs>
2: Is this, like, is this something like there's something I'd just like to add to that, right? Cause um when it comes to grieving, like it's not the person that's grieving, like they're going through it, right? But the the circle around them can get very awkward with how to respond to that person's grief. And I found, um, again, in some situations, like you just gotta check in and you know, be transparent. So you can be like, look, I don't know how to maneuver this territory with you. If there's anything that you need from me please let me know. And sometimes, again, like, it's different for everybody. But just, like, a simple check-in and saying, like, I don't know what to do, but if there's anything I can do or if there's anything that you need, let me know. And usually people will be very much like, yeah, cool, I need this from you, or, like, cool, thanks, you know? So just a simple check-in, to just to ask that person what they might need. But like Suki said, you know, sometimes people can't really verbalize their thoughts, but the fact that you can check in with them is letting them know, like, hey, I'm here for you, I can show up for you in whatever way you need, kind of thing.
0: So I have heard so many people lose their shit if somebody came up to them and said, well, you'll get over it soon, time heals all wounds, God has a plan, everything happens for a reason, like that's the kind of stuff that gets somebody's ass handed to them. I have never heard of somebody um, getting mad um, at someone else that they said, This is a really shitty situation, and I don't really know the best way to help you, but just let me know what you need. Like, I right. haven't seen anybody get pissed off about that. Um, so, so, just be advised. But um, as we're nearing the end here to this episode of the podcast, if you realize you might benefit, Um, If it's again, if it's therapeutic services, if you have some grief that is really interfering with your ability to function, you can always find services through www.psychologytoday.com. You can actually probably specifically search for someone who addresses grief and find therapists in your local area. If you do a search by zip code, if you're not currently experiencing, um, you know, issues with functioning, if it's not quite at the point where your grief process, Um, needs, uh, has medical necessity for treatment, or even if you're not really necessarily grieving, like maybe this talk has caused you to really think about, and want to explore your beliefs about death and dying, what you want for your death and dying process, maybe even just want to explore how you conceptualize consciousness and set some goals in your life around those things, then you may reach out to a life coach. And either myself, Anna, or Suki would be happy to assist you. Um, My contact information, you can go through my website, www.mistymarlow.com. That's Misty Marlow with an E. Or you can directly send me an email at email at mistymarlow.com. And now I'll let Suki and Anna tell you how you can get in contact with them if you would like their life coaching services. Why don't we start with Anna, since you're in the middle of my screen?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I could be reached at www.journeyswithanna.com. And contrary to popular belief, it's Anna with one N and not two. You could, you could contact me through there, or you can email me at journeyswithanna at gmail.com. And again, that's Anna with one N.
1: And you can reach me at wildessentia, that's dot acom or introductions at wildessentia.com.
0: Uh, Lee, if you want me to, I'll um, put in the notes for this episode in the episode description, um, your contact information to make sure that nobody gets too messed up by the spelling because I know that is easy to do. So uh, I'll make sure I do that. And anybody listening, if you didn't have time to grab that pen and piece of paper, please do reference the episode notes and you should be able to find out how to contact any of us. But bottom line is if you need some life coaching services, reach out and get them. And Sookie, take a <laughs> sec. And before we go, I just want to say thank you for being our special guest. Yeah, yeah, you're right, Bye. <laughs>
1: and this is Suki, and like my grandmother always used to say, if you can't be good, be good at it. We'll see you next time, guys. Bye. Bye. Bye.